This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday, and I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart, mind, all you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's our primary number, 340-9585. If you live outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340 340- 9585. Good to have you. Uh, since it's Tuesday, and I keep saying it's Tuesday, not because I'm, you don't know, but I have to remind myself these days what day of the week it is. Uh, so let's get right to some questions. My first one comes from Patricia. Hi, Pastor Ron. I have a Bible question. When Mary was going to cling to Jesus, and he said not to because he hasn't yet ascended to his Father in heaven, why did it take him a while for him to ascend? Was it because he was waiting for Mary to come and see him? But what about the verse that says to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord? And if Mary had disobeyed Jesus and clung to him, would she have died, or would he have not been able to ascend? Just wondering about this and wanted to say hi. Also, because I have a lot of time on my hands, I kind of wonder about such things. Patricia, God bless you. We miss you a lot. God bless. Um, I think maybe we, we mischaracterize this story a little bit. Uh, when the Bible says that Jesus called her name, this is Mary Magdalene, of course, and um, she was, uh, talk about great faith, oh, great faith, she was going to go get Jesus. I came to see him and he wasn't there. And then in the greatest case of mistaken identity in the history of the world, Jesus appeared. She thought he was the gardener. Tell me where you've taken him and I'll go get him. I want you to think about this. If Mary was normal size for a Jewish woman 2,000 years ago. She'd have been 95 to 105 pounds. If Jesus was normal size, would have been maybe 5'7", 5'8", 150-ish or so pounds. He had 75 pounds of spices that were provided by Nicodemus, not to mention the burial cloth. What was she going to do? But you see, the reason her story is so great is that she didn't care. It's sort of like love can do all things. And so when he turned around and said, Mary, now he would have said this in a way, a voice inflection that we use many, many times, instantly she would have known it's him. Now imagine if you were her and the one you loved, the one that you thought was gone, you thought, Everything you trusted in and believed in was stolen from you. And all of a sudden, he's standing there in front of you. Uh, I think every one of us probably would have grabbed onto him and held him. And that's what it means. It means that she was just holding on for dear life. I lost you once. I'm not going to lose you again. And Jesus basically just reminded her. And this was very polite. It wasn't rebuking her or anything. He just said, no, no, no. Don't touch me. And it's really a very strong word. It's don't hold on to me with that death grip. Because I still got to go to my father and your father. 
So that's all that was going on there, Patricia. Now, the reason it took him a while to ascend, um, uh, two, two reasons. He, he ascended, uh, had to descend into the lower parts of the earth first, so that was one of the things he did in those days between his death being laid in the tomb and his uh, resurrection. Um, but he's also got work to do. Remember, he said that he's going to heaven to prepare a place for us. And so he had to go and sort of report. Now, he also had to ascend because he was going to the lower parts of the earth to take King James' captivity captive, meaning he was going to go take those faithful saints from history beforehand and lead them into the presence of God the Father. You know, they were in paradise, but paradise wasn't their ultimate destination. Heaven was, and, and nobody could go there without Jesus preparing the way. So that's why it took him for a little bit of time. The verse that says away from the body uh, is to be, to be uh, present with the Lord uh, doesn't really apply here. It doesn't apply to Jesus because, of course, Jesus was God. And that verse in Corinthians, Paul is describing what happens to a believer upon death. The moment we are absent from the body, this, this old tent encloses the real us, and when we're released from that old tent, we go immediately into the present presence of the Lord. So this wasn't a case where Mary could have disobeyed uh, and would have died. It wasn't that at all. This was a wonderful moment for Mary, and I'm, I'm certain a wonderful, equally wonderful moment for Jesus. And I'm glad you have a lot of times and can wonder about such things. Uh, we ought to have plenty of time for questions now. Patricia, thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Samantha. Uh, Pastor Ron, how can the Bible be the Word of God when the Bible says Jesus is the Word? Good question, Samantha, but there's two different words. Jesus is the living Word, the incarnate Word. Everything God had to say, He said in the person of Jesus Christ. That's God's Word. This is my Son. Listen to Him, He said on the Mount of Transfiguration to James and Peter and John. So he is the living word of God. The Bible is the written word of God. No contradiction there at all. So Jesus is the living word. Jesus came to reveal the Father. Hebrews says, uh, the book opens, within the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us and literally translated it's in Son. In other words, God is saying in Jesus, forget everything you've ever heard, this is who I am. So Jesus was the Father's last word. So both things are true, Samantha. The Bible is the written word of God. And Jesus is the living word of God who still lives. Good question. Rob says, where did Cain's wife come from? Rob, I just dealt with this in my study last Wednesday night uh, in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, this is the question that cynics always ask. Okay, so where did Cain? Remember, um, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve lived in the garden. For a long time, we read Genesis like it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the story's over. But, but, but there's no telling how long they lived in the garden before the fall. There's no, long, uh, no telling how long that, uh, that uh, Cain and Abel lived uh, before um, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Now, we know it was, it was a significant number of years because while Cain and Abel would have been born through the process created by God, uh, they would have been infants. And um, over the course of time, they'd been offering sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, so they were grown. They were grown into adulthood. And at some point in that adult time, um, that's when the murder occurred. So where did his wife come from? Well, in those years, in the near-perfect creation, there would have been people born all over the place. Remember, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And so there would have been lots and lots of other kids. So Cain would have married uh, one of his sisters, uh, one of his cousins. He would have married um, um, uh, second cousins. Who knows? But there were plenty of people, and getting married and populating the earth 
uh, were, were their prime directive. So uh, no secret, no mystery where his wife came from. There were uh, lots and lots and lots of people on the earth at that time. Now, I know the question is, well, what about incest? How could they be so sinful? Does God condone that? There was no such thing as incest before there was a law against it. And the law against it was after people started to die um, in what we would consider a normal lifespan. And the world had fallen. And so there, there would be no genetics problems, no mind problems or mental problems uh, from marrying a sister. Um, God provided men. He provided women. He told them to multiply, uh, populate the earth. And that's exactly what they did. So, Rob, that's where Cain's wife came from. By the way, and uh, you can listen to the study that they did last Wednesday night. Uh, it's on our website, calvarysa.com. Um, that's usually a question that is asked by cynics, people that really don't want to dig into the Bible for themselves. Um, we know that people last a long time. And in a near-perfect world, there would be a lot of repopulation. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Peter: What would the biblical argument that guns are not the problem, but that people are? Uh, Peter, it's a little awkward the way the question was submitted. Um, the biblical argument, you know, if 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 your if your question is about well. Uh, why are people trying to take away gun rights and and all these murders? If you just take away guns, uh, that would that would solve the problem. Well, we know that's not true, Peter, because the problem is and always has been and always will be mankind. We're the problem. In our flesh is nothing good. Cain didn't need a gun to murder his brother. In the ancient world, before there were guns, as we understand guns, there were all kinds of weapons that were forged. The Philistines, who were the great metallurgists of, of their time, um, they rose to power because of the superiority of their armament. So um, the problem has always been people. It's always people now. Now, I'm not going to get on my soapbox here, Peter, but one of the things that frustrates me now, I'm not a gun guy. So I want everybody to understand that when I'm making this comment. Now, I don't own a gun. I've owned one gun in my life. Uh, Paula was uncomfortable within the house. Uh, I was uncomfortable with the noise that it made. Uh, I went out one time in the desert in Arizona and shot. And it just wasn't fun for me. It wasn't like a thrilling thing. So I'm not a gun guy. But if we really examine the world that we live in today, What's changed in the last... In, well, I'll just use my lifetime. I'm really old. What's changed in my lifetime? Guns haven't changed. What's changed is the people that use the gun. Timothy marked this, in the last days there will be perilous times. Another translation says terrible times. It describes the kind of world that we live in. So guns aren't the problem. Why are high school students shooting up their campuses? That has nothing to do with the gun. If somebody really wanted to solve this problem, they would say, you know, the problem seems to be those kids. And they would take a different approach to solving it. But it's easy. The low-hanging fruit is the gun. I don't really have to solve the problem. So they go after the guns. And they make a political cause of it. When in fact there's kids who are so lost. So lost. Let me also say this, Peter. It is my opinion, and since I can't prove it, that's all I'm advertising this says. My opinion is no more valid, valid than yours. But it is my opinion that... The generation of kids that are growing up now, absent God, so lost, the result of divorce almost always, most of the time left unsupervised. It's my opinion that things are getting worse. 
I remember when Columbine happened, the world was shocked. We're not shocked anymore. We've got these kids who are loners. We've got kids who aren't supervised. We've got kids that parents coddle. Kids that spend most of their waking hours online or gaming. And we wonder why they do these things. Every time you see one of these massacres, I promise you it's the devil behind it. I promise you it's the devil behind it. He came to kill, to rob, to destroy. All we have to do is look for God. Hope that's what you meant, Peter. Thanks very much for the question. Let's go to... Let me see, i got a question here from Phil, from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, if someone dies today and they're not saved, do they go to hell or torment? Regards, Phil. Uh, Phil, if they die right now out of, out of uh, uh, relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ, they go to the place of torment in Luke chapter 16. Um, hell, as we understand hell, and we use different words, Hades or the lake of fire. Uh, remember, the, the, the real eternal hell is the lake of fire, and that's not even made yet, not even created yet. That doesn't come until after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. It actually comes at the beginning of Jesus' thousand-year reign and the Antichrist, the false prophet of the first ones who are thrown into the lake of fire. So that's what I consider hell, that, that eternal place, the second death um, uh, from, from the book of Revelation. But everybody who dies apart from Christ goes into that, to the abyss um, um, from Luke chapter 16 where the rich man went in Jesus' story, not a parable, but the story of the rich man and Lazarus, um, and they go uh, directly into the place of torment. To be absent from the body is to be with, present with the Lord, or to be absent from the body is to be in eternal torment. Now, I'm going to guess on something here that, that I feel strongly about, but if you disagree with me, that's okay. I think the torment is physical um, in that place today as well. I think it will be physical forever and ever. Um, we go into the presence of the Lord. We get our new glorified, resurrected bodies. I don't think those who are judged forever are spared their physical bodies. I, I think they, they will suffer forever and ever and ever. And it happens the instant they leave this world. I was having a conversation, Phil, with somebody uh, just the other day. Somebody was talking to a, a friend who was suicidal. And he said he just couldn't stand it anymore. Pastor Ron, what do I tell him? He said he's suffering so much. I said, you need to go tell him that his suffering has only just begun apart from Jesus Christ. If he would pull the trigger, if he would take his life, that he would step into a torment forever and ever and ever with no end. Infinitely greater than anything that he's struggling with now. I had a friend who once said, you know, um, Ron, I'm, I'm all for suicide. I just think we got to kill the right enemy. Don't kill the physical body. It seems to be working. But kill the old you inside. The flesh. Die to the flesh so you can live for Christ. So feel instantly, just like we're instantly in the presence of the Lord, they are instantly in that place of torment if they don't believe. It's one of the reasons we need to be really, really focused on sharing Jesus with the people that we encounter because apart from Him, that is everybody's ultimate, ultimate destination. Here is a question from Jerome. Uh, Pastor Ron, I pray occasionally with a guy who always refers to God as Abba. It makes me a little uncomfortable because it seems so casual, and I want to know if this is okay to do, or is it actually irreverent? Um, Jerome, I, I think, I, I, I've, I've heard people use uh, Abba or even Daddy, uh, and, and it always helps to know them because knowing their character, I know whether or not it's irreverent. We certainly have been given a spirit of sonship, 
that gives us the right to approach God as Abba, that's father or daddy. That, that would be the English transliteration. Um, it, it always seems a little strange to me. We have English words. English is our first language, so uh, I don't really get the reference to Abba. That's the Jewish word for father. Um, however, the Hebrew word is what I meant to say, not Jewish word. Um, um, but at the same right, say, at the same time, the Bible gives us the right to do that. Now, I'm a little uncomfortable with daddy, although I know a couple people who often will pray that in our corporate prayer, and I know their relationship with God is so solid, so intimate, that, that somehow with them it doesn't seem out of place. So, uh, Jerome, if you're uncomfortable, don't do it. Um, but but I think we need to give people the right and the freedom to uh, to express that intimacy with the Lord if that's in fact uh, the way that they are comfortable praying. So I hope that answers your question. I don't think it's irreverent. You know what I do think is irreverent, Jerome? Let me take a minute. We don't have any calls yet. Um, what I think is irreverent is people that will pray calling Jesus Lord you know if you listen to Westerners especially in this country you hear us pray and we say the Lord the word Lord over and over and over and over well, Lord I just want to come before you and Lord I wanted this and Lord thank you for this and oh Lord Jesus thanks for I think that's irreverent when we call Jesus Lord we ought to be obedient we're putting him in charge of our lives I think too often we fall into ruts when we pray. I think we can pray without thinking. You know, Jerome, I have a bunch of kids now, not now because school's out, but every day about 10 minutes to 4 before we go on the air here, a bunch of kids come from the school. And they pray for the radio program. They pray for the audience. They certainly pray for me. And uh, I love the fact that they come in here and pray. And, um, you know, they pray with the heart of a child. And even still, knowing their hearts are pure before God, even still, I see them, many of them, falling into the same habits with prayer that their parents fall into. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I hear that all the time. I thank you for this day. Instead of just talking to God like he's your friend. Jesus said he calls us friends. We ought to talk to him as though we really and truly believe it. Thank you for the question, Jerome. we got three minutes. Let me get this question. Uh, Anonymous says, Pastor Ron, what do you think is going to happen when the economy ruins people through lost jobs and etc. as a result of this plague? I'm really afraid. Anonymous Um, You know, I don't mean to sound spiritual here, but Jesus would say, and I'll say what Jesus would say, would say, um, do not worry about tomorrow. Be anxious for nothing. Um, I think this is an opportunity for us to demonstrate what real faith is. Um, The economy is going to be a mess. I think what that means for Christians is there's going to be a lot of people who are really and truly hurting people that are really afraid, um, who need to hear about our Jesus. And for you, Anonymous, as a believer, if you would focus on their need for Jesus, you would focus far less on your fear of a ruined economy. Uh, I think things are going to get really hard. I think things are hard now. We're going through things that we've never been through before. Uh, We've never been through one of these things. I remember... After 9-11, I can go back even further and remember uh, just before I got saved when uh, the first uh, uh, war with, with uh, Iraq started, Desert Storm uh, was, was what it was called, and, 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 and the streets just emptied. Nobody was buying anything. There was so much uncertainty. Uh, this is even worse uh, because we wake up the next day and everything is the same. And I'm, I'm, I agree with you, Paul, and I've been speaking about this. You know, I, I, um, I, I don't think we have even a first inkling about how really, really difficult things are going to be in people's lives. Now, here's the point for you, Anonymous. Just make sure that you're holding on to Jesus. 
Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. The things that you need will be added unto you. Jesus said, Don't worry about tomorrow what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink, for today has enough of its own to worry about. And then he gives examples of, of how Jesus has blessed the sparrows, how he's blessed the flowers. And, and then he, he basically says, look, I love you so much more than I love them. I'll take care of you. He wants us to trust that. So anonymous, turn to Jesus. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. The phones have been quiet, so 340-9585 will fix that. Toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 we've got 30 minutes left let's go to our first caller today federico on line one federico thanks for calling you are on the air gloria dios benaventurado Gracias a, a tu también. <laughs> I know you're bilingual. Pastor. Pastor. Yes, sir. I, I want to uh, put this question. What were the Jewish Pharisees doing so wrong that today in this church we're doing the same thing? Not in all of them, oh. but in many of them. What were uh, the Jewish Pharisees doing so wrong? Yeah, Federico, and and that it alienated ourselves from God because yep. we're, thinking, we're so much that. And I'll listen to you, Pastor. Thank you, Federico. God bless you. You bless know, you I could do. Go ahead. In your home and okay. your congregation and. and and peace and grace be upon everyone. Thank and you, gracias. Be firm and established in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank Amen. you, Federico. When he blesses me, I feel really blessed. You just you can hear his heart. I love that, <laughs> Federico. When when uh, the, the okay, thank you. The, uh, okay. the 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 Pharisees were doing exactly what's being done in the world today. Jesus said they were honoring him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. I think there's nothing that's worse for God than people going through religious motions, religious rituals. When their heart brings sin in their heart. You know, to say God and not serve God. I said a few moments ago in a question about prayer. To, 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 to pray to the Lord Jesus and not be obedient. And then we go to church. We raise our hands during worship and we sing songs. And God is saying, I can't hear those things. It's like his fingers are in his ears and his, his hands over his eyes because he just can't watch. He just can't listen. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus said, you strain at gnats. Remember, a gnat would have been an unclean animal that came in. So they're straining gnats. They've got something over their, their mouth to make sure a gnat doesn't accidentally fly into their mouth. And he says, you're neglecting the weightier matters of love and justice. You're getting rich off of the backs of widows and orphans and poor people and sick people. Those are the very people that I've come to deliver. Federico, imagine what it was like, and, and this is my favorite example of it, but, but I, I again, I've got so many. But when they were trying to trap Jesus in the synagogue and they brought him in and the Pharisees, the religious leaders had placed the man with a shriveled hand right in the front so Jesus couldn't miss him. It was the Sabbath and Jesus couldn't miss him 
And they did it because they knew that Jesus would help them. And so when they walk into the synagogue, into God's house, and there's this man with a shriveled hand, and they're trying to trap Jesus into doing something that would, at least in their eyes, violate the law and be worthy of death. Well, that's why God refused to accept them. If you go to Isaiah chapter 1, Federico, and just study uh, in Isaiah, I just finished not too long ago, but chapter 1, it's a great chapter to listen to that study at calvaryessay.com because G- Jesus tells them, God speaking, he says, he says, look, who, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts, your new moon feasts and, and your Sabbath and your, your, your new moons, who asked this of you? My soul detests those things. Why did God's soul detest those things? Because their hearts were far from God. And that's why God hates religion. That's why I hate religion, because religion is a seducer. You go to church, you sing the songs, you give a few bucks in the offering plate. And then you feel like, well, I've done my bit for God. God says, no, no, you don't even understand your bit. You offer everything to me. And that's the problem with the Pharisees. They look like the real deal. Jesus called them snakes, a brood of vipers. They claimed to be serving God. The whole time, Federico, they were planning his murder. That's what they did that was so wrong. They were misrepresenting God in heaven. You have turned my father's house into a den of robbers, he says. Religion, well, let's just say it really makes us accountable to do the right thing. And when we don't do it, then our hearts are far from God. And when our hearts are far from God, Federico, they get harder and harder and harder. I tell my church all the time that the the, the more often you say no to the Lord, the easier it is to say no to Him the next time. And if we're saying no, if we're living in willful sin, all the while coming to church and doing our religious bit, God hates it. He absolutely detests it. As a pastor for now almost 25 years, I've grown to detest it as well. Thank you, Federico. It is always a delight when you call. 340-9585. Here is a question from Bradley. Um, Why don't Christians meet in homes like the Bible says? Well, Bradley, the Bible doesn't say we're supposed to meet in homes. The Bible reports that they did meet in homes in the early church because there was nowhere else to meet. This an ancient world. They didn't have modern construction. They couldn't build these big buildings. I want you to think about this. The first day of the church, there were 3,000 men plus wives and children who would have been in church the next day if they had a room that was big enough to hold them. That's where they'd have been. You talk about mega churches a couple of days later, 5,000 more. I mean, with, within the first week, when you add in women and children, there was probably 15,000 people And that number would increase daily. The Lord adds daily to his church, such as are being saved. So they met wherever they could. They would meet at rivers. They would meet um, um, in the countryside, but but primarily uh, because Christians were being persecuted. They would go indoors and meet in homes. So when Paul writes a letter to Ephesus, for example, um, it wasn't one big church building in Ephesus. There were house churches spread out all over Asia Minor. And they met there because there was nowhere else to meet. Now, one of the things we got to understand, Bradley, is that's not a prescription for the way things must stay. There are some pretty radical militant, even... Um, home church proponents out there always saying, no, if you're not meeting in a home, you're not in the true church of God. That's nonsense. The culture changes. The size of buildings change. And so Christians meet wherever we can. And I know there's a lot of people who like the idea of house churches. 
um, mega churches aren't God's plan, they say. But you know what? When you open a church and you start doing the work God's asked you to do, what are you going to do? Tell people don't come? Uh, we've got a pretty large church in terms of numbers of people here. But we got a small facility, so we just keep packing on services. What am I going to do? Stand at the door and say, no, no, you should go meet in somebody's home. Now, Bradley, let me also say this, and this is not your question, so I don't mean this in a personal context for you. But most of the time, when I've found people who are radically pro-home church, there are three main problems. First, they don't want to be under authority. A lot of times these people will get... um, real vocal, strong personalities, and they'll go into a small group and sort of try to take control of the group. It's one of the reasons home Bible studies are not really high in my list of priorities. If you've got the wrong person teaching, then you're going to find trouble. The second thing is they don't want to serve. You know, if you go to a home church, what's the limit of serving? Let me help you clean up the coffee cups when we're done. But we need to serve. And the way you do that is by serving the body of Christ. Third, they don't want to give. I've never been to, I'm sure there are some that do, but I've never been to a home Bible study where they passed an offering plate. I'll say even more directly that I know people go to home churches and announce that the reason they do is because they don't have to give. Church always just wants your money. So home churches is not prescribed in the Bible. It just describes what was going on in the first century church out of necessity. So Bradley, I hope that answers your question probably a little more than you than you asked. Greg wants to know... Um, My question is about church membership. I'm not a member of a church. Is that a sin? Um, Greg, no. You know, you need to be, um, it is not a sin. You need to be uh, connected to, involved with a local church. Period. End of comment. We don't need church Christians' uh, attitude that we have around now is just ungodly. It's unbiblical. Um, but church membership, I think, is also a little bit unbiblical. We are members of the greater body of Christ. And and I know I'm going to upset my Baptist friends in particular, but but the truth of the matter is, is there is no biblical warrant for church membership as church membership is understood in 21st century America. It's just not. We're all a part of one another. When one part hurts, the whole body hurts. But we use membership to tie people down to a church. We use membership to try to get them to pledge money, a certain amount of money, a certain level of giving. We use church membership to control them through discipline. And I just don't see any of that in Scripture. Um here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, uh, our announcer says all the time, if you're a church member here, if, you, if you've been to our church more than twice, you're a church member. But we don't have a formal membership. We don't have them sign any pledges. Um, we don't make them commit anything. We just tell them to keep coming, make sure your heart is right, and grow in the grace and knowledge of God and of His will for your life. So, uh, no, it's not a sin Um, However, Greg, let me say this. If we're going to be open and honest about it, if you're going to a church that is really pressuring you to become a member, you probably need to conclude that that church is not for you. That church is not for you. There are churches that won't let people serve unless they're members, um, and we need to serve. So find a church that has a different view of membership. Thank you, Greg. Jason says, how do I know if I have the gift of healing? I want it so badly. Jason, um, this is a misunderstanding of what the gift of healing is. Now, when you look in the Bible, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, 
and talks about healing. There's always an S on the end of it's plural. So the gift of healing is not given to one person to go around healing everybody. Oh, I wish that would be the case. I can't tell you how many times I've walked through hospitals, especially children's hospitals. I'd say, I'd plead, Lord, I don't want any attention at all, but just let me walk by these rooms and heal these kids or heal these people. And in hospitals, I pray a lot for the people um, who are in the hospital, not just the people that we go visit, but the people who share in the rooms or in the next room kind of thing. Um, and I certainly want them to get healed. But the gift of healing is actually gifts of healings, plural. So, Jason, if I go to church and I am sick or I am in some way compromised and uh, somebody prays for me and, and I get well, then I'm the one who's received that gift of healing. But our problem with understanding this, Jason, is the people that we see on TV, the, the, the ministries that travel, the crusade events that are around, and see all these phony miracles and all of these crazy claims. Churches like Bethel in Redding, California, I'm praying for people to rise from the dead and um, going out and sucking graves because the spirit of Elijah might be in that grave. Um, th- there's, there's no gift of healing like that. That's all nonsense. God still heals, but he doesn't do it by anointing one man who is going to get rich off the back of those who are sick and going around pretending to heal people. If you're honest with yourself, Jason, and you look around and you see all of these ministries that claim to heal people and stretch legs and throw away your crutches and all that silliness, there's absolutely no way to verify. And there's no follow-up validation that those miracles were authentic or genuine at all. It's showmanship. It's P.T. Barnum with the religious veneer. So you're not going to get the gift of healing if by that you mean you lay hands on people and they're going to get healed. That's not a gift that God gives. He gives gifts of healings to those who are sick and are made well. I want to be really clear, that doesn't mean I don't believe in healing. What I believe is that we just mess it all up. Our whole perspective is completely wrong. And we've seen lots of gifts of healings in our church. But never because I or somebody else laid hands on them and slapped them on the forehead and pronounced them pronounced them well. So you're not going to get the gift of healing unless you're sick and God heals you. That's a gift that He will give you to be well. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Francis. Um, Pastor, why do you think this virus is people, even Christians, so frightened? If we really believe, shouldn't we deal with it better? Excuse me. Um, Francis, um, we all should deal with it better. Um, the, The problem is that we're humans. And fear is a part of our makeup. So I think rather than be hard on Christians who are afraid, we need to sit with them and help them through their fear. And yeah, I really believe at the same time uh, there are things that I'm afraid of. I just don't give in to fear. So that's what Christians ought to do. We ought to give in, or, or rather not to give in to our fear and walk by faith And the result would be God would be so pleased. And our witness, our witness would be more effective. The the answer to why is this virus frightening so many? We're afraid of dying. That's just part and parcel of the human condition. We have an instinct to survive and we don't want to. So what we need to do is simply say to people, trust God. Let's go to Lockhart, Texas, and talk with Jack on line one. Jack, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I absolutely love the 
I don't know, a jingle, for a lack of better words, that comes on before your show. Sometimes it gets stuck uh-huh. in my head, and it, it just stays in my head all day long. I absolutely love it. And uh, Thanks, I want to thank you again for, for uh, 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 introducing me to Pastor Pete and having me go to his uh, the Calvary there in Lockhart. And I was wondering, is there a place that you were talking about preachers a little bit earlier and churches, and I was wondering if there's, if, if, if there's some place where people can go to find a Calvary uh, branch of, 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 of church um, where they can find out where there might be one in their area because, you know, um, your, your uh, radio um, happens to hit places that are nowhere close to you. Yep. <laughs> I can. Thank you. Hey, do me a favor and tell, tell Pete and his beautiful wife that Paul and I love them very much and we keep them okay. in our prayers. Appreciate it a lot. Yeah. Uh, there is, yeah, there the is a place, I Jack. Don't call much, it, the reason I don't call much... Uh, anymore, so I got I got him that I call him <laughs> and ask him all my questions now. But I want to thank you again for telling me for introducing to me. He's so absolutely perfect for me. He really is. Yeah, good. God bless you, man. Thank you. Give him my love, uh, Jack. There, there is a place you can go. Google Calvary Chapel Association. And there will be a, a, a thing for churches, and you'll put in your state. Click on your state. And it'll show you all the churches in that area. Now, I'm the Calvary Chapel representative for all of South Texas. So from San Antonio South um, all the way through um, um, uh, Tyler, not Tyler, uh, Temple and, and, and Colleen and the, the areas there. So I go a little bit farther north than where we are, uh, but all the way down to, to Corpus. So... Um, we we do have uh, availability. All you got to do is Google Calvary Chapel Association, and you'll find a church locator. Uh, thank you for the comment on on the song too. Uh, that song was written by a really good friend of mine named Kevin Green. He's a pastor. It's a wonderful, wonderful musician, but he is a pastor in um, Fort Bragg, California. He wrote that theme song for us probably now 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. And uh, we, we use it on our teaching program, which is on radio all over the country as well, and then on this program as well. Um, but uh, Kevin wrote it. He is a wonderful, if you Google Kevin, uh, you can get access to some of his music. So if you like that, you'll like a lot of the other stuff that he's done. Jack, thanks. Good to hear from you. It's been a little while since I've heard from you. God bless you. We have uh, four minutes left. Let me get to a four-minute question. Um, Herb says, Jealousy is a vice rather than a virtue. So why is it good that God is a jealous God? Herb, that is a great question, and the reason it's so great is because the answer is absolutely freeing. God is jealous, but not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. And you're right, jealousy is, is a, a vice, certainly no virtue. But when it's connected to God, and his jealousy is for you, again, not of you. He's not jealous of another God getting your attention. He's jealous for you. He wants so much for you, and he knows the only way that you can fulfill your destiny to, to walk in the perfect, pleasing will of God is to follow him. And he's so jealous that he makes it difficult for us to walk outside his will. So it's a very, very good thing that God is jealous for us. Let me give you an example. Um, When Paul and I first got the call to San Antonio all those years ago, there were a whole bunch of people that tried to talk us out of it. Paula is African-American, I'm white, and they say, you know, San Antonio's in the South, and they're not going to accept a mixed-race couple, especially a pastor. And we've had some, some issues over the years, but, but the idea is, is I, I would tell people, look, God knows she's black, he, she, he knows that I'm white, and he said to go to San Antonio. But those were just tests, and God, because he's jealous for me, gave me a measure of faith that made it impossible for me to say no. I just sat with two people, one of my staff pastors and and his wife, and God has given them over this time of quiet uh, during this quarantine period, God has spoken in their heart and given them some direction that makes absolutely no sense. 
But because he's jealous for them, he won't let them stray. And and, and they're going to head out and they're going to do this thing. And what they're going to do is follow God, even when it doesn't make any sense. That's only because God is jealous for us. He's protecting that calling. And I am so grateful. Herb, if I hadn't come to San Antonio, uh, you know, I have no doubt God would have used me a little bit. But this is his perfect will. This is now my home. These are my family. And it's all because God was jealous for me. While people wanted to give me an easier path to stay where I was, God didn't care at all about an easier path. He wanted to be sure that Paul and I got here. And believe me, there were some times we thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why are we in San Antonio? That's 60% Hispanic. He sends a mixed couple, black and white, to come. But it's been the best 25 years of our lives. And even when it's been really, really hard, his jealousy for us has what's kept us hanging in there, no matter what. And I wouldn't have it, Herb, any other way. It's just been wonderful that God has been a jealous God. So I hope that settles the issue once and for all. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. This has been the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. If you want to know anything more about us, calvarysa.com is our website. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Amen.